0: Let's open with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now with humble hearts. Father, wanting to worship you in spirit and in truth, desiring to give you true praise and honor and glory, which you so rightly deserve. Father, we are grateful for the body of Christ and the joy we have to come together and to fellowship with one another, to be united by the Spirit. And Father, we ask that your Spirit would not only increase our fellowship and our edification of one another, but also would give us an understanding of the Scriptures, for we know and perceive that we're not able to understand what is written in the pages of Scripture Apart from your spirit, illumining our mind and showing us the truth. So we ask that you continue to do that this morning as you've been doing as we walk through the pages of the book of Daniel. Thank you for this book and the, the accuracy and the truth of the prophecies that are written therein. Father, help us to incorporate these things into the way that we think about you and the way that we think about the world in which we live. Lord, I pray that all that we do in this place, all that is thought and said, would be pleasing and satisfying to you and would give you honor. First, in your name we pray. Amen. This is week number 61 in our study of the book of Daniel. So we continue to walk through it verse by verse. We're over in chapter 11, where we've been for a couple of weeks. And. You'll remember this is the explanation of a vision that Daniel has had by an angel who was sent specifically to speak to him. And this angel is not so much uh, speaking what was given to him. He is reading from the writings of truth. And so apparently there's a scroll, there's a book, there's some form of writing that this angel is conveying out of that writing of truth to Daniel what his vision meant and what he had seen. And you remember the only the only description we got of Daniel's vision was that it was of great warfare. And clearly as we've walked through the first the Persian kings and then um, Alexander the Great and then Alexander's kingdom being broken into four parts and then the uh, two nations of the Ptolemies and the Syrians, or the Seleucidans, um, fighting with one another. This has been all about warfare because these were uh, times of great warfare. Uh, We've seen Ptolemy and uh, Syria fight one another, attack one another over and over and over again, which they did for hundreds of years. And so as we we come to where we're at now in the book of Daniel, this morning we'll be in, uh, the date of it would be something like 175 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. And Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C. So these factions, these nations that came out of the empire of the Greeks, continued to fight. We'll see that again this morning. They're still fighting and it's been a couple hundred years since um, they were first formed. And so they never did get along with one another and ultimately uh, they go by the wayside when Rome comes and captures. But, so this is great warfare and that's all we've seen. And and I fear that while we, we understand the accuracy with which this angel was speaking to Daniel, and we've seen that as we've matched it up with history, you can almost, verse by verse, match up everything that you see happen in, these, in this passage with what really happened in history, what the historians wrote about what was going on in their day and time. And it matches well. And the more we discover, the more we um, do archaeological work, uh, the more writings we find, the more accurate this prophecy becomes. And so this is from the the book of truth, and, and we understand that. I know that. Intellectually, we understand that. But I wonder if it really impacts us in our thinking. Because if this was true about these ancient peoples, which were thousands of years ago from our perspective, 2,500 years ago, if it was true about them that the book of truth contained... What would happen between the nations in the time in which this was uncovered, before Christ came? Would it not also be true that that same writing of truth would contain what is going to happen between the nations in our day and time? Because this is all of history. And what we'll see as we go through these pages, while we're talking about things that happened in the 1st and 2nd century BC today. This book, this writing of truth, will sweep all the way to the end of time. And if it does, then that contains the age of the church in which we live. And so if it, if it contains the end and it contains what's going on um, a few hundred years after Daniel, why would it not contain what's going on today? It seems to me that it would. And so I don't know that 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 we're being affected in our thinking that way, that what is happening across the world today with, with significant upheaval, with significant political and social changes happening right before our very eyes with, with um, countries on our very border, especially to the north, changing doctrine by which they govern day by day. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Can't, can't even travel back home if you're from Canada unless you're fully vaccinated. Uh, you're not allowed across the border. So you, if you have family and all this, it doesn't matter. You can't go. And so we, we see this significant social, political, and military change all across the world today. Why would we not think that that's written in this book of truth, in these writings of truth, the way that it's going to go, what is going to ultimately happen? And we'll see a specific example this morning that God allows men to do what they want to, but in so doing, they fulfill the writing of truth. For God is sovereign and has written, I believe, the Chronicles of the History of Man, it's already written. We're just living it out until we get to the end of the age. And so that's the way we need to think about these things. And every time we see one of these, these um, prophecies filled, fulfilled in such intricate detail, as we'll see this morning, then we ought to think, okay, there's nothing that's escaped God's attention when it comes to who rises to power. And what they do once they get that power and all the, um, the intrigue and the deceitfulness and the wickedness and the good that exists in the world has already been written. And so I don't know that these things impact us as they should. I know I struggle to, to be affected in my thinking and in my perspective the way I need to as we see the truth that this angel gave to Daniel that concerned people hundreds, thousands of years ago from our perspective. I believe the same is true today, that there's nothing going unnoticed by God. God has not wound the world up and just letting it unwind. He is precisely orchestrating what is happening. There's warfare in the heavenlies amongst the good and evil angels, just like as there were here, that are causing influence over the leaders of nations and the way those nations go. Those things were true in this day. That, um, they were true in Daniel's day. They were true 300 years after Daniel. I think they're still true today. There's nothing that has changed. The world is the same as it was. It's just getting worse. So that's, I want us to have that perspective. As we walk through these verses this morning, we'll begin in, we left off in 19, so we'll pick up in 20 this morning, and I just want to read what we're going to try and walk through, beginning in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 20. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of the kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time." He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice foods will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to one another at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So we have this change in leadership. You remember last week we were talking about trying to get the name right here, um, Antiochus the Great, who went ultimately to capture Greece and was defeated by the Romans, banded with the Macedonians, banded um, with uh, those in Asia Minor. And they all came against him, and he was defeated roundly. And on his way home, Because they had demanded tribute money for him to pay for the wars that they had fought, he raided um, a temple and was killed. And so Antiochus the Great is gone, done away with. And so that's where we pick up when verse 20 says, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Now, history writes that the Seleucidan king who came after Antiochus III, the great, was a man um, named Seleucus IV, Philopater. So this is uh, the fourth Seleucus, and they go back and forth between Seleucus and Antiochus, as you go through the kings of the Syrian kingdom, so this king comes in, and he's the one who is written about in verse 20. And you notice it says, "In a few days, he will lose his reign." Well, a few days translates in history to a few years. He was in um, he was in the kingship for several years, not a long time, but um, for a few years, and. He is the one who began to tax the Syrian provinces because Rome was demanding tribute. So he went to his people and said, we gotta pay up. And so he began to levy heavy taxes on them. And because of that, apparently, one who was close to him, one in his own court, poisoned him. And so he died of poison. That's why it says he didn't die in uh, anger nor in battle. He died because he was poisoned and so when he was poisoned, it left this void in leadership um, because he did have at least two sons, but his older son was in prison in Athens being held as a hostage for the tribute money. His other son was still an infant. He's just a baby. So there's n- none of his sons able to take their place. Now you remember that Antiochus the Great gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy as his wife in order to try and seal peace. Remember that from last week? Well, that was Antiochus the Great. And then you've got his son here being killed by being poisoned. And then he had another son who is named Antiochus IV. So I don't know why the oldest one wasn't named Antiochus IV, but he wasn't. He was um, Seleucus IV. So he's killed by poisoning. His brother who is Antiochus IV, is not in line for the kingship. It goes to the descendants of the king, right? We know that's how it works. It goes to your descendants. Well, one is an infant, one is in prison. The infant is then killed by one of the people inside the court. So the infant's gone. He can't be king, and the other one's in prison. Don't know if they're ever going to let him go. So by trickery, by what the scriptures call intrigue, the brother of Seleucus IV, Antiochus IV, steals the the throne. And as he does so, he then kills the one who killed the infant, covering everything up. And then he gathers together with himself a few of his good friends, a few of his buddies. You notice it says, with a small force that he'll take the kingdom. And you notice he seizes the kingdom in verse 21 by intrigue. It's not legitimate, but he's smooth. Um, The ESV will say by flatteries. He's a smooth talker. He knows how to lie and get away with it. He knows how to trick people. And you notice all through this passage, all of a sudden we switch from wars, still have wars, but now things are done by deception, by intrigue, by trickery, by lying to one another, by deceitfulness. That's the way this whole passage goes. And this is what characterizes Antiochus IV. Now, because of the way that he took the throne and his trickery and, and the deception and the lying and uh, stealing the, the throne when it was not really his, he was um, given a nickname. Um, I'm looking for it here. I know it's like Infineus. And what it translated means is they called him Antiochus IV, the madman. So, because of that, he changed it. And he called himself Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And Epiphanes means not madman, but glorious one. And this is him exalting himself. This is his arrogance as he takes the throne. You call me a madman, I call myself the Glorious. And so that's how he's known through history, as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And, um, but his people apparently did not appreciate him much, but with a small band, and you'll notice it goes through a couple of verses here. First it calls him a despicable person, verse 21. In his place, a despicable person, will come in. I think um, the ESV calls him contemptible. At any rate, this is not a good person. This is one full of evil, full of arrogance about himself. And it says um, he will seize the kingdom by intrigue. And then you'll notice um, a little later, it'll say that he'll... Um, By a small force of people, he'll take the nation. And what's going on here is that Antiochus wanted all the wealth for himself. And so he gathered together to himself a small group of people, his his friends, his buddies. And what they would do in times when things were just kind of quiet going just pretty well in the, in the kingdom, they would go into the rich provinces and steal all the wealth of the people. And they did that multiple times. And then what Antiochus would do, he would divvy out this among his friends and give them power over certain areas of the Syrian kingdom. So now there's a small group of guys, all who are incredibly wealthy, who are ruling over the Syrian kingdom. And so he's got this, and they're all deceitful, they're all evil, they're all intent on evil. And so when Antiochus needs to get troops together, he goes to all his friends, and of course they bring all the troops from the rest of the kingdom. But it's all done by trickery, by deceit by evil intentions, so that they can have the wealth. And this is what he did that his fathers and his ancestors did not do. He divided out the booty. They had never done that before. The king always kept it all for himself. But in this case, he's dividing it out. That's what it means when it says he does what his ancestors did not do. Now, you'll notice as soon as he becomes king, we have this statement in verse well, let me say something about 21. I'll get to that in a minute. Oh, verse 20, where it says, "Yet um, then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom is what the NAS says. The ESV doesn't say that at all. It says it much differently. Um, it reads, who will send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. Now, so there's this debate about glory and kingdom and did it refer to the jewel of the kingdom? I think here, when you have the NAS, and, and this is true in all translations, no matter how good they are, is that the translators can't help but interpret some things for you so i think here we have translation and mixed with interpretation because they want to to indicate that they went into jerusalem the jewel of the kingdom which is what that language would suggest whereas the sv reads it's just the glory of the kingdom Meaning of the Seleucidan kingdom, not of Israel. So I don't know which one is right. I prefer the ESV because that word jewel and the, just the whole connotation that goes with it is not in the original. So the translators are mixing interpretation with translation. And that's true in every, even in the ESV, you'll find many places where that happens where they mix translation with interpretation. Um, you know, you can't help but do that if you're translating the language. Um, so, you, it's always good. I read three different translations um, so that maybe I won't be duped by one. Um, you know, it's the best you can do, right? If I could, I would read the original language. I don't have that skill set yet. Doesn't mean I won't ever get it, but I don't have it today. So I have to trust some other people. Um, So it's good to read. I read New King James, ESV, and NAS, the three most literal translations. And between the three of them, you'll probably get it right. Um, So anyway, I'm I'm not exactly sure that this indicates uh, Israel. It is true that Antiochus, no, his dad, Seleucus IV, sent... An emissary into Jerusalem to take all of the wealth of the temple. And the temple had 400 talents of gold and another 400 talents of silver. The tribute that uh, Rome was asking for was 100 talents a year. So there's eight years worth of. Tribute money in, and, and so when this individual went to get that money, demanded it. There you can read it in Second Maccabees. It is a bizarre, at best, um, relation of a story that God Himself came down and put darkness over this person, and that the priests had to go and offer sacrifices in order to get the darkness removed. And he went back home and said, nobody's taking that money because God himself will come down and stop you. And it's a bizarre account. Don't know that it's even believable from my reading of it, but nevertheless, it's in the second Maccabees account. Um, so anyway, I, I, I digress, right? Um, we get down to verse 21 and you see where he's taken the kingdom that is not his, it is not rightfully his, but he's taking it by intrigue. And then in 22, you have him winning over some overflowing forces. Notice what it says, overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Okay, I don't know if this is a specific statement, or a general one. I tend to take it as a general one, meaning no one can stand up to him, at least at the beginning of his reign. He overcomes everybody. And that's what it says, is that an overflowing force will be flooded away before him, meaning he wins. So I don't know if that means that the king of the south attacks and gets defeated because we don't know of a war that matches up with this. I think it's more of a general statement. And this this issue about going against the prince of the covenant, now I do believe that speaks of Israel. And it's well known, it's well chronicled, that some of the priests defected from Judaism and supported Antiochus and led the kingdom of Israel, many carried away in this deception to support Antiochus and to worship his gods. It was widespread in Israel. There are a few who did not, but many did. Because you remember, if you're caught practicing Judaism here, when we get down a little further, you will be sacrificed on the altar built across the altar of God. Now, we'll get to all of that, not this week, but hopefully the Lord wills next time. But that's called the abomination of desolation in this passage. But that's what's coming. And so we know there was, this is why I think it's a generalized statement, there was defection among the priesthood. And even some priests were killed by other priests at the order of Antiochus. So there's infighting among the priests, and they're killing each other. So I think that's what it means that he will even go against the Prince of the Covenant. Those priests, some of them defected and killed other priests who did not defect. So there's this manipulation to the extreme going on during Antiochus' reign. Now, we keep on moving and you get to verse 23. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice this deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. This is that group of his buddies, an alliance being made. They will go and deceive people, steal from people, steal from their own people and take the money for themselves and then divvy up the prophet amongst themselves. So there's just this whole taking of the kingdom doesn't rightfully belong to him. We'll kill anybody who knew anything about how he actually got in power, and then we'll deceive the people, and in times of peace, which is at the beginning of his reign, we'll go and we'll steal from them, and we'll take all their money, and I'll put my buddies in charge of them. That's what's going on in the kingdom of Syria. It's all deception. That's why he's called despicable. Because of his methods and his heart and his intentions, there there's nothing good that is going on by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's all bad. Now, and remember, his sister, because you've got and you've got Antiochus II the Great, who gives his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy to be his wife, and then your son comes into power as the king, but he's killed by poisoning, and then the king's brother, who would be Cleopatra's brother also, is now going to invade his sister's kingdom and realize it's her offspring, hers and Ptolemy's, who will be the next king's. So when he goes to fight against the kings of the north. He's fighting against his own nephews. How twisted is it all? It's crazy. And, and he has this influence over his nephews because he goes one time, the story, to just be a friend and just to meet his nephews and to get along with them. And they have a jolly old time. All to come back later in war against them. It's just, it's It's twisted. And as we said, there was all this intermarriage between Ptolemies and Seleucidans that makes no sense. But it's the way that they set peace with one another. Okay. So we 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 keep on walking through this passage and we get to verse 24. And this is where he steals from his own people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. That's his own realm, of his, of his own co- country, his own nation. And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. And then, colon, he will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. Who, among whom? Among those in the alliance. Among those in the small group of people. His friends. His buddies the guys he gets along with, the ones that he makes wealthy so that they'll be loyal to him. That's the way he gains loyalty. When the people called him a madman, his small group of friends didn't because he made them wealthy and rulers over the people who were calling him a madman. So all this deception and trickery going on and... You notice it says, and he will devise his schemes. This is the way this guy works. He does it by deception. He does it by lying against strongholds, but only for a time. Now, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was king of the Seleucidan kingdom from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C., 11 years. And in those 11 years, he wreaked havoc not only in his own nation but in Egypt and in Israel all three of them were a mess because of this leader okay so you just realize that's coming but it's only for a time and you remember back in chapter 8 where antiochus the fourth epiphanes i believe is the fulfillment of the vision of the ram and the goat, remember the vision. And there, there are several things. Just, let's turn back there for just a minute because it, it speaks of this intrigue and deception and warring and just the way that this guy operates. So over in Daniel 8, 8 through 12, is the vision that Daniel had about Antiochus Epiphanes IV, I believe. He start in verse 8 of chapter 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. That's the division of Alexander the Great's kingdom. Out of one of them, out of one of the four kingdoms, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgressions, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then the voice comes forth and says, how long? And that's where we get the 2300 mornings and evenings. So only for a time. And then the angel comes, Gabriel comes, and stands before Daniel and gives him the interpretation of what we just read. And that interpretation is given in verses 22 through 25 of chapter 8. And notice how this matches what we're reading now. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdom, kingdoms which will arise from his nation although not with this power. That's Alexander's kingdom being divided. Then notice, in the latter period of their rule, whose rule? Of the four kingdoms rule. In the latter part, here we are now. Alexander died in 323. It's now 175 BC. The Romans will come within a few years. Matter of fact, they're already coming against the Seleucidan kingdom at this time. They've already defeated it, although not on their own homeland. So we're in the latter part. Matches what it says, that in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, notice this, insolent and skilled in intrigue, Antiochus the fourth. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. So he is going to go against Israel. And through his shrewdness, there you go again, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, that's the Lord himself, but he will be broken without human agency. The visions of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true." So here is this intrigue, this deception, this lying, this stealing of things, Spoken of in chapter 8. That's why I think it's Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Because he fits the bill perfectly. Of what is spoken of here. And he did. We'll see it next week. If the Lord wills. Invade Israel. And cause mass destruction. Mass killings. And the people to lose their Judaistic faith. And so we'll see that. And that's what that is all about. So I believe that vision of chapter 8 is about Antiochus Epiphanes. But, as we'll see as we go through chapter 11, it has implications, foreshadowings of what happens at the end of the age. And we'll see that in chapter 11. Now, chapter 8 jumps from Alexander the Great to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Chapter 11 has filled in that gap for us. That's what we've been reading for the last two weeks. All these wars between the Seleucidon and the Ptolemy kingdoms. So chapter 11 details what chapter 8 skips. But then it goes on, and and this um, we've gotten like 12 or 13 verses here about Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 11. So going back there. So you see this intrigue, this deception, this wickedness, this self-magnification as the glorious one. You see it in chapter 8 and you see it here in chapter 11. It's the same person that we're talking about. So that Maybe that fits some things together for you in all these visions that can be um, confounding and confusion. They're really not. They all run together, and some explain others. And here 11 has given us great details about what was skipped in 8. Okay, so we come down, and so now in verses 25 and 26... he will stir up his strength and courage, notice, against the king of the south. So Antiochus IV is king of the north of the Seleucidans. He's now going to invade the king of the south, the Ptolemy kingdom, where his sister and his nephews are in power and his sister's husband. He's going to invade them. And so... He does, against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Now remember, this is Antiochus' sister and his nephews, who are in the royal house, and their schemes devised against him. You just have to use your imagination, right? Notice what happens. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, the king. is destroyed by his own people, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. So as they lose, the king of the south loses the war with Antiochus the fourth, not so much because the armies were stronger, but because someone in the royal household, those who eat his choice's foods, kill him and do away with the leader of the nation. Now, I don't know if that is Cleopatra's husband or if that's one of his nephews, of Antiochus' one of his nephews. Not clear on that. But it's one of those. It's either his brother-in-law or his nephews that get killed by the own their own people. So there's a scheme, and you just wonder if Antiochus had anything to do with it. Doesn't say that, but he's the schemer. He's the he's the deceiver. He's the uh one full of intrigue and deceit. So Antiochus IV defeats the Ptolemies in this battle. And it's a resounding defeat. Um, there is um, a battle that is described in the Chronicles of History um, about this war when Antiochus IV came against the Ptolemies and resoundingly defeated them. It was uh, the battle was up in the Nile Delta, Nile Delta at a place called uh, Pelusium. It was around 170 BC, so five years after Antiochus came into power, after he had already raided all his own people, uh, he goes against the Egyptians and he wins resoundingly. And in winning, well, even before that you'll remember that the Seleucidans controlled all of Israel all the way down to Gaza. We saw that previously. So that's all of Palestine. That's all of Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. They already controlled all of that. But you get this interesting uh, verse, verse 27. After the war and after the Ptolemies are defeated, then you get, as for both kings their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. So these two kings get together for a meeting. It's either his brother-in-law or his nephew. Come together for a meeting and they lie to one another and they deceive one another, each trying to out-trick the other. Right? They speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed. Why is it that one cannot get the upper hand. Here's the verse I wanted to point out. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Men do what they want to do. They lie to one another. They try to deceive one another. They try to scheme. They try to get the upper hand. But God says, it's not done yet, because I've already appointed a time. There's already a time set when this will come to an end, this warring between the Seleucidans and the Ptolemies. But it's not yet. Why? Because there's an appointed time. Men do what they want to do. Men are volitional in their actions. Men are culpable because they are volitional. So they're culpable for their evil deeds, but yet God is sovereign and orchestrating over it all and directing what happens in human history. So there you get both sides of it. And yes, that can be true. And that's why you can't be a hyper-Calvinist and say it's already set and done, there's no reason for us to even do anything because God's already written what's gonna happen. True, but false. That should drive true believers to be righteous and to go after people who are deceived and try and win them with the gospel. Because we don't know whom God has chosen and what God has written in the book of truth. We know a few things, ancient history and future, but we don't know what's written in the book of truth about today. And so because we're ignorant of of the truth, then we dispense the gospel and we try and win people to the kingdom because we don't know what God has written about that person who may be sitting beside us or maybe our neighbor. We don't know what's written in the book of truth about them. And so it ought to drive us to be obedient to our commissioning as Christians. So there you have it. They want to get peace, right? But they try and do it by tricking one another, and God says, it's not done yet. And so there is no peace. And then you'll notice, and we'll just set this up and then come back to it next week, down in verse 28. Then he will return to his land, so he's going back to Syria with much plunder because he beat the Egyptians, so he took all their wealth but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. So on his way home, he goes through Judah. And maybe he goes through Judah because the Israelites did not support him in his war against Egypt because they wanted to be from under his thumb because he was already influencing the priests for evil. So they wanted—they would rather Egypt win than Syria win at this time. But they don't. And so Antiochus is just kind of a little irritated with Judah. So he goes by there on his way home. And the next verses detail these actions that are spoken of here, that he will take action, we now get that action in detail that he will take. We saw a little bit of it in chapter 8, but here we'll get more. Okay? So we're to Antiochus the 8th, which is the 4th, which is as far as we've gotten in history until this chapter and we'll, we'll take some time and try and make sense of this, I believe, jumps from Antiochus Epiphanes at his demise after he's done to the end of the age. It's this huge leap, and we don't get any more details about what's going to happen out of the book of truth until the end of the age. So that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to try and unfold next week. We'll look at Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did. We've already talked about a good bit of that previously, but we'll, we'll go through it again. And then we'll try and make sense of how I believe this chapter jumps to the end of the age and why I believe that. Um, because you, you need, um, need to understand that. Okay, we're done. Thanks for your time.